Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago. You guys are ready because Marie's messed, you know, like dogged you out, right? They're like, oh no, we're not going to like be all light with Michelle. So, as Maurice mentioned, we are in a month of prayer. And prayer is one of those things that it's, it's, it's kind of like food. It's one of those things that we need, and we need it every day. But a lot of times we're not quite sure how to do it. Even the disciples said to Jesus, teach us, teach us how to pray. And it was the, the one thing that they, they asked him specifically in scripture to teach him. I'm sure they asked him a million other things, but that's the one thing that we get to hear about. And there's a reason for that because it's so important. And for those of you who, um, who don't know, this month we're going to actually have the staff for from 12 to 12:30 kind of lead you through some prayer time. So if you've got some time during your lunch break at work or you know at home and stuff, just kind of stop by the prayer space, the you know, and just kind of spend some time in prayer with us cuz we would love to do that. This week, we're praying for opportunities to share our faith. And as you all know, we talked about who's on the ship with us. And I was talking to um one of our Members, and he was saying that he and his family decided after considering like who's on the ship with them and who's around them that they were going to walk their neighborhood. So they walked their neighborhood to see, look at the houses where there are people that they may not know and they prayed for those people. And then when they saw people that they didn't know, they introduced themselves. And so their neighborhood is better because they have decided that part of their ship is their neighborhood and they have been walking around in their neighborhood as a family which I think is just great. So next week we're going to have Celestine Musakura here from Rwanda, and he is somebody who's going to talk about prayer um, and worship and how those two things go together. Now, we've been trying to gain a deeper understanding about what it looks like to pray and what prayer is through the story of Jonah. And as I mentioned last week, Tim Mackey has a really great series on Jonah in his podcast, Exploring My Strange Bible. It's a series he did when he was over working at Door of Hope. And he says his goal is to rescue us from the VeggieTales version of the story of Jonah. And I kind of look at Jonah as the anti-Paul. He's kind of the guy who did the opposite of all of the things that Paul did. Paul um, followed God and listened to God and obeyed God. And then you have Jonah, who's just very much like many of us. And so he's kind of, I call him the Mr. Bean of prophets, because he's just so into just himself. And everything that happens is just a big deal, and it's all drama. And it's not just all drama, but it all is drama revolving around him. So when we look at um, prayer, prayer is presence, as we talked about last week. And last week, we talked about making the choice to be in or out of God's presence. And then we talked about how God initiates that presence, and he is the one who calls us into his presence on a daily basis. That was our landing place last week. So this week, it's going to be our jumping off place. <laughs> 
Our jumping off place in that this week the question is not will we or won't we live in his presence, but assuming that we do, how will we maneuver and what are the challenges that face us there? In one or two, we saw the gift of constraint as one of those things that God has shaped and prepared for us in the same way that he shaped and prepared the fish for Jonah so that we can direct our attention toward him and where we learn that we're never beyond the reach of his grace. And so in Jonah 3 and 4, we kind of see an even bigger picture of that where we look at constraint, but more so we look at it um, as a way that we live into the beauty of prayer and of God. It's not so much an imposed constraint as it is a choice to constrain ourselves and to be obedient to God. And so what we look at prayer as is prayer is kind of this this brick and mortar of this uh, monastery, this sanctuary that we create with our lives. Prayer becomes the brick and mortar of that place. It becomes the way that we create this sacred space for God to live in because he says in John 14 that when he and the Holy, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us that he and the Father would live in us. And so what that does is that makes this, this a temple. We are God's temple and this becomes holy ground. So prayer is the only way, actually, to join the Father and the Son in his work because he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we have to understand that prayer is not just a routine and prayer is not just a rhythm in our lives, but prayer is like breathing. And when we hold our breath, we die. And so we as individuals and we as a church, if we don't learn and understand what it means to pray and to be with God and in God's presence, it becomes a really difficult um, way to just kind of be with God and learn to grow up in him and grow up with him. So Jonah 3 and 4 is pretty short. It's uh, less than a couple dozen verses between them. And so let's dive right in at Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently upon God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that he, we will not perish. When God saw what they had done now, and how they turned from their evil, evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction that he threatened." 
this kind of reminds you of Jonah in 1 and 2, right? Jonah's on the boat, and these guys, each one praying to his own God by the time God shows up in this place and shows up with Jonah, you, we find them all praying as one, with one voice, to the God of Israel. So revival breaks out in Nineveh, and it's um, complete, and it's uncompromising, and it's repentance from the greatest to the least. And I read that, and I thought about what would it look like if that happened here in Portland? What if by the preaching of our churches in Portland, just simply by, and when I say by the preaching of, I mean by the witness of our people who are believers out in Portland, what if revival broke out in Portland like that? What if everybody from the greatest to the least responded and said, you know what, that would be really great. What if just because of the word of God, this entire city was changed. What would, what would it be like if in here revival broke out completely from the greatest to the least? One of the things that I found very interesting is when I moved to, to Oregon, I would hear these people say, different people who were pastors, different uh, you know, other people who were believers, they would say, you know, Portland, it's just so unchurched. And people would treat it like it was this mission field out here. And, and so all these pastors were moving here because of all of us heathens here in Portland who needed to be, you know, shown the love of Jesus. And what I realized is that I didn't even think of Portland as unchurched so much as other churched. And so the first thing I noticed about Portland is that its greatest strength is also its greatest weakness. And I think that's the case for most of us. And that is that Portland is open to everything. So if Portland is open to everything, what kind of an opportunity does that present to the people of God who have the truth, who have life to be able to give to the people of Portland? And maybe just the word of God being lived out and spoken by our lives, by that, revival would break out in this city. I love that. So when I think about prayer and I think about what that looks like, it makes me want to pray for this city more than I already do. It makes me want to tell all of every person in this room, let's pray for this city. And let's pray for the people in this room and in this place as well as in this city. So now Jonah clearly has a relationship with God. Jonah is, he's obviously, he's a prophet. So he's been educated and he's been spending time with God and God has spoken to him and he's gone out and he's done the things of God and he's been, he's been preaching and he's been, he has been a guy with a, with a relationship with God. And his personal, in his personal relationship with God, he communicates with God in prayer. So I want to look at the next passage, but I want, I want to use the end of verse 3 as kind of like a ramp into, of chapter 3 as a ramp into chapter 4. So let's look at this. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction that he threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. 
Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away from my life, for it's better for me to lie, to die than to live. He's so dramatic, isn't he? Just kill me. Just kill me now. Because you're so nice. He's just... It's, it's, part of me says that he's ridiculous, but part of me <laughs> sees myself in there, so I hesitate to talk about just how ridiculous he is. So I look at this prayer from Jonah, and I ask myself, what's good about it? Because there are some really good things about this prayer. I mean, we, we give Jonah a hard time, but there's some really good things that we need to see in this prayer. And the first thing is that this prayer is even more unremarkable than the prayer he played, prayed last week. Last week, he cherry-picked from the Psalms, and he created this beautiful prayer that kind of encapsulated what he was going through and what he needed to be able to say to and about God. So this week, it's even more unremarkable. The prayer is just like, see, God, you're so good, and you suck for being so good. And he's upset about it. But I like the fact that it's so unremarkable, that it's just so natural. It seems like if you didn't see those words and Jonah prayed, you would have just thought he was having a conversation with God because he just goes in and he just says, see? And he says all of these things to God and they're very personal. That's another good thing about this prayer is that it's very personal. And he really does ask God to meet him where he is. It's honest. That's another good thing about this prayer. It's honest. Jonah's hot. The way these words are, are actually put in this passage, Jonah is really angry. He's not just ticked. He's very, very angry. He's incensed. And Jonah went to the right place with his complaint. That's a good part of his prayer. He went to the right person. He went to God about his prayer. And he understands the word, because when you look at the prayer itself, when you look at how upset he was, he says, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What he's talking about goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. And when we look in Exodus, there's a place where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And so God passes in front of him, and the verse says that he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so when you look at that, it says it's not, that's not always the case that you know, we see God as clearly, and we see that God will relent. It says that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. When you think about, when you think about uh, David, when he sinned against God with Bathsheba, and he prayed, and he fasted, and he did all of the things that Nineveh did, and God still took the child that was conceived in his sin with Bathsheba. With the Ninevites, he doesn't do that. So what's wrong with this prayer? And, and, and I use the word wrong not as a way to say, well, it's a horrible, horrible prayer because there's lots that's good about it. But where does it stop short? And where does it fall short? It falls short in that he continues in communicating with God, but he never moves into communion with God. And we see that because of what God's response is to Jonah in chapter 4. 
God replied to him, is it right for you to be angry? Now, he never says, is it real for you to be angry? He never says Jonah's wrong about the words that he says or the word that he infuses into what he says. And, he's, and it's not the problem that he's just angry because anger itself is not the problem because we hear the verse that says be angry and sin not. He has a problem with what he's angry about. And so he's angry with what God is doing. He's angry because God is being God. God is inviting Jonah, and by extension us, to examine our hearts when he asks simply, is it right for you to be angry? When our prayers begin at communication with God, then we can only traffic in information. And we can only traffic in information when we refuse to move into a place where we have intimacy with God. When we're trafficking in information and we're just tra trafficking in, in facts and things like that, then our communication with God becomes just that. I'm talking to him, I'm listening, but I'm really doing more talking, and I'm actually listening for what he says about what I said. Does that sound familiar? When we pray? So the goal of prayer when we're communicating with God is we're just communicating to tell him what's on our mind. But when we commune with God, he's telling us what's on his heart and what matters to him. So we listen for and we look for understanding what's in God's heart when we commune. Communication is about what matters in the moment, and communion is about what is essential for eternity. So we try to hold God to his words when we're just communicating to, with him, right? We just try to, we just take these words and we hurl them back at him. If God is so good, then why does he allow bad things to happen to people? We're throwing his words back in his face. If God cares so much about me, then why did he let me get involved in that crap relationship with that dude? If God knew how much I wanted children, how come he dot, dot, dot? And so we take his words and we take them and throw them back at his face when we're just communicating with him. Because what matters when we're just communicating is that God would be the God who sees to my needs, who fixes my boo-boos, who checks on me and takes care of things to my satisfaction and on my terms. And so Jonah tosses these words back in God's face from Exodus 34. But he doesn't mention the last part of the passage where he says he's maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, sin, and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children's children for sin and parents, the third, fourth generation. He, he eventually blasts Nineveh. But in his time and on his terms, we remember the passage that says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we go, God, pull some of that vengeance out of your pocket. Deal with, deal with that person now. Deal with them because they did this thing to me and I need you to deal with them with no mercy, no grace in the moment. Impatience is our way of telling God how to do his job. And disappointment is his way of telling us, I got this. Because when we get disappointed because God didn't pull it off the way we wanted him to pull it off, he lets us know. When we're angry, we don't want God to punish us when he's angry. Any more than we 
want to hit our children when we're angry. You don't want to spank a child when you're angry or even punish a child when you're angry. The words that you say to your spouse when you're angry are different than the words that you say to your spouse when you're driven by love. People grab a gun and when they're angry, what they do while they're angry is very different than what they would do when they were not, when they were driven by love. So we're back at God's question, is it right for you to be angry? He says your anger is real, but is your anger right? Because you see, anger demands that we do things that often can't be undone. We want to finish people when we're angry. We want to punish them when we're angry until we're no longer angry. My dad used to hit me when he was angry, while he was angry. And to this day, I can't actually hear even kids playing around where somebody hits a wall because that takes me back to when I hit that wall. And so when you think about the things that people do when they're angry, they're not patient and they're not kind and they insist on their own way when they're angry. Which means what? That they're not loving. It's almost impossible to love and be driven by love when you're being driven by anger. And so we see Jonah in this place, and Jonah goes outside, and he sits down, and he wants to sulk. And God uses this as an opportunity to go inside to work on Jonah. So let's look at four. Let's pick it up at chapter four. So it says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Did you not tend it? This plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is God's object lesson for Jonah and for us. When our relationship doesn't go beyond the basics of communication to communion, we cannot fully participate with God in his work. Jonah claimed his right to be detached from the city, to watch it go down, to watch it burn. Do we do that sometimes? We kind of stand back from an environment we're in and say, fine, go ahead, do what you're going to do. 
watch what happens. And we kind of take almost like a perverse joy in watching somebody go down that we had maybe preached to or maybe said something to or were around and they weren't necessarily affected the way we wanted to be, them to be affected. Or maybe they are getting blessed and we don't see that they've been punished for the wrong that we think they should have been punished for. And so even though they're doing okay, we're upset about that. Jonah separated himself and became a spectator in God's work. Not a participant. And he was a spectator without joy. That's the thing. If this entire city breaks out in revival, can you imagine if we sat here and we were upset and bothered by it? And angry about it? God provided the plant the same way he did the fish. It's the same word. He prepared, he appointed, he, he, he specifically made this plant. But Jonah can't see God's hand, only his comfort or lack of comfort. He doesn't actually see God at work. He doesn't see that he serves a God who went after him when he ran away, saved him when he gave up on himself, continued to work with him even though he complained about his calling, loved him even though his heart was hardened toward Nineveh, forgave him, the one who would not forgive. He continued to show himself to a man who refused to see him. I've been Jonah more times than I care to count when I saw Eric Garner and Mike Brown die at the business end of a gun from a police officer. I had a problem with bad cops. Not all cops, just bad ones. But what would happen if God had spoken to those police officers and they suddenly turned to him, could I just turn it off? George Zimmerman is a hard name for me to imagine. Yeah, I should be praying for that guy. It's hard to think about sometimes, isn't it? When you think about the people that you know have done some things that are inexcusable. All of us have done things that are unexcusable because to excuse a thing is to pretend that it did not happen. But we don't serve a God who excuses us, we serve one who forgives us. And this is what God is trying to get Jonah to see. He's trying to get Jonah to see that he's no different than Nineveh. Because Nineveh was far from God and Jonah deliberately ran from a God he knew. Nineveh was far from a God they didn't know. Jonah knew God and ran. But when we are in communion with God, we see the desire of his heart. We see what matters to him. In communion, we come into agreement with God. We take communion here every Sunday because we want to be reminded of what Christ did for us. We want to agree about his sacrifice and about God's love for us by that sacrifice. That is why we commune with him. And so God's invitation to Jonah is the same as his invitation to us today, is that we would simply see him. See him. 
You cannot truly see him and not agree with him. In communion, we agree that this broken body and this shed blood was God's gift to us. In communion, we understand that God loves us and adores us. He says in that passage, he talks about how Jonah is more worried about a plant that came up and went down overnight, but that he's not concerned about, how did he put it? He says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Cannot tell their right hand from their left. These are children. There are 125,000, 120,000 children in this city that Jonah does not care about, that he is not concerned about. I wonder sometimes, I'm watching, if I'm watching TV and I'm seeing mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting, am I as angry and as upset about that as I would be in the moment if my Wi-Fi went out? That would get me up. <laughs> Got to go find my router, deal with this, get my TV back on. And it would probably move me more in the moment than yet another mass shooting. So this morning I got up and I was, I was thinking about this message and thinking about the end of it and, and how it was going to go, and I kind of go through things in my brain when I start to think, and I'm looking at Jonah and I'm seeing, I'm seeing not just this, this picture of, of a guy who, you know, there's some commentators who say when you get from the first part of Jonah to the second part of Jonah, he's a God of second chances. We see this picture of God as a God of second chances because he speaks to Jonah and he says a second time, go into Nineveh by the time he gets to, to chapter three in this book. And I thought, no, I don't think that's it. Because then that would imply that there's this linear movement from Jonah being kind of a jerk to Jonah being better and better and better. But is there anything really better between the guy who ran away and the guy who's being obedient with the wrong attitude and the wrong heart? What I see in Jonah is not this linear thing that puts me on this sliding scale of I shouldn't behave like this and then it's okay if I behave like this because then what that does is that brings me back all over again to this place where I say, well, every time I screw up, I'm back at square one with God. But that's not what Jonah is telling us. Jonah is telling us the story of the prodigal. Because, yeah, he ran. But then you have the elder brother who stayed but had the wrong attitude about the one who ran. But it's both and are there. And both and are here. And the goal of those stories is not to tell us how bad Jonah is but how good God is how much God loves. And so this morning, the more I thought about it and the more I, I wondered whether or not, oh, should I end this this way and should I do this? And I always see this outline in my brain and I, can, I start asking God, well, what do you want me to do here? And how about this? And what about this? And I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. And he says, why are you just communicating with me? I'm just going because I just want to know. How do you want to end this sermon? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? And he's like, stop. 
I need you to stop. Commune with me. See my heart. See who I am. And so I, I cannot tell you how hard it was to just stop and just see who he was. Just see him for him. And so then there was this song that came, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, and that song by Kim Walker, Oh How He Loves. And so thank God for Jen Jackson, because I texted her, and I was like, can I get the lyrics? Because I, I want us to see this. There's something about that song. He's jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane. And I'm a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And then all of a sudden, I'm aware of the afflictions, the problems, the issues, because they are eclipsed by his glory. And I realize just how beautiful he is and how great his affection is for me, because that's what we learn in communion with God. Because God is love, that's what we see. And when we're angry and we're driven by that anger, we can't see that. We cannot fully see how God loves if we're busy hating somebody. It's impossible. And so in our prayers today, we're going to pray this morning. And I know that I've taken you guys through a lot these last three weeks. I've given you challenge after challenge. I've asked you to pray. I've asked you to do. But it so matters to me that we know how he loves us. The lyrics go on to say that we are his portion and he is our prize and that we're drawn by redemption to the grace in his eyes. And there's this extreme thing again. If grace is an ocean, we're sinking. And so here today, I want heaven to meet earth like a sloppy wet kiss. And I want our hearts to turn violently inside of our chests. And all of the regrets and the problems and everything, I just want you to bring them to him so that you just hear how he loves us. So I've asked our prayer team to stand at the doors, but also to stand down here in front for those of you who would like some prayer. And if we could have our musician, where's, where's Allie, is she here? If Allie could just kind of come up and just kind of help us to, to hear this. I'd like us to kind of sit with this for just a moment. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I just want us to spend a little time communing with him this morning. And some of us can't get past the feeling or the the issue or the problem or the struggle. And that's why there are going to be people up here to pray with you because I want you to be able to do that. I want you to be able to say to God, this is hard, like Jonah. This is what's bothering me. But I want you to just kind of still sit in his love for you. Stand in his love with you. And then we're going to let you come down and take communion after we've had like a couple of minutes of prayer. And then I want you to really just kind of take in 
how he loves, that he loves, and that he doesn't just love us, but that he loves you. That he's not a God who's there for us, but he's a God who's here with us. And then I want you to take that with you when you go. So I'm going to come down here, and anybody else on staff or anybody else who's on our prayer team who prays, I'd like you to come down front. For those of you who want prayer, that's cool. And then we're going to just kind of see where worship takes us and communion takes us, okay? So I'm going to pray very quickly, and then we're going to go into that space. Father, meet us here. Meet us on the holy ground that is our hearts this morning because you live there. And just show us. Like Moses, God, show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.